Hi there, this is Bill Cleveland at Change the Story, Change the World. Needless to say, this year has been both odd and, at least for us, extraordinary. Odd, well, pick your poison. Extraordinary because we have spent the past year having amazing conversations with dozens of creative change agents who are kicking ass, making a real difference in the upside-down world we live in. These conversations have helped us at the Center for the Study of Art and Community manage some of those lurking shadows and even spark some great ideas and some optimism. We're really excited to be starting our second season on February 2nd, but in the meantime, we thought it might be nice to revisit some of our most popular past episodes. Next up is Normando Ismay, the loving trickster. After our initial airing of this episode, we received dozens of emails thanking us for pulling back the curtain on what one listener described as the wonderfully vibrant and wacky alternative Bizozo universe, a place we all need to visit over and over in these gray and uncertain times. So, we invite you to sit back, have a listen, and hitch a ride on Normando's Bizozo Express. Hello, hello. Normando, are you there? Normando Ismay could be described as having a transcendent spirit. Oh, Normando. Let's see. I think you're there somewhere. Oops, not there. A painter, a poet, a pirate, a conjurer of stories. There you are. Ah. But above all, a trickster. A serious trickster shapeshifter. Can you hear me? Whose enigmatic stories, some would say... Do you see me? ...are hard to believe. I do not see you. Yes, hard to believe, but true. There you are. My word. You haven't changed a bit. <laughs> I have. In a hundred years. It's good to see you. Story, story, This is Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and community transformation. Now... I've known Normando Ismay since the time of corded telephones and dollar-a-gallon fossil fuel. He's one of those people whose story needs absolutely no spin, just a little air and an ear tuned to listening and learning and laughing, which we did together at the end of April 2021. With me in Alameda, California, the ancestral home of the Ohlone people, and Normando at his relatively new studio in Tacoa, Georgia, the traditional lands of the Salaguateye Cherokee. Along the way, we're introduced to ephemeral places like Chilicito and the Mattress Factory, cafes with names like Beirut, Bizoso, and Success, and an extraordinary cast of characters that includes Papa Bizoso, the one-time child preacher, Contralavias, the smuggler, the last Inca, Pedro Borjejas, and Dynamite, the drug dealer who succumbs in the legendary Atlanta crack attack. Part one, Bezoso, the mattress factory, and Chilecito. I'd just like to give you a, a few questions to set the table, and we'll see what happens. So the first one is, what is your work? How do you describe your work in the world thus far? <laughs> The first thing that I would have to say is my work isn't just one kind of work. I've, you know, I've gone through all kinds of medias and and work that I've done. I think it was Eric Fromm, a book that I read of him, and 
something that got me was about specialization and dependency. Mm-hmm. And I, I think at that point decided I wasn't going to specialize in anything. And that's how I've approached my life, you know, working on new skills and sometimes making dramatic shifts in what I was doing. And so it's hard for me to define what my work is in like a couple of words. Yes, I hear that. And actually, you have a lot in common with almost everybody I've talked to which is uh-huh. a very strong intention to follow a winding path that is in service to something more than just a discipline or a skill, but something else. Uh-huh. So if you looked at the horizon line, what have you been moving towards with these various paths? To live right, I would say I've tried my best not to exploit or be exploited. Um Of course, you can't be 100% on that. You will get exploited and you will exploit. (laughs) But trying to keep a degree of honesty in that, I think, has been where I've been hanging for years. Yeah. Actually, that echoes what Alice Lovelace said when I asked her the same question, is to try really hard to learn from her mistakes and try not to repeat them with the goal of not causing bad trouble, but just good trouble. Yeah. I was thinking about your move. For a long time, you established yourself both as a maker, creative person, but also as a location with Cafe Bizoso and uh, Little Beirut. And I'm wondering if you've imported those to your new space. It does have elements of all of it. Yeah. So there's the space. So the the idea of Cafe Bizoso, you know, it it's not just a performance space. It, it means something to you. What does it What does it mean? Well, Cafe Bizoso, it was a traveling performance space, mm-hmm. an art installation specific to the site where I was creating it. Little Beirut was a space. Bizoso came out of a proposal that I made to the Arts Festival of Atlanta. They had invited me to perform in this huge stage. It was like four feet up in the air. And it's like me and my solo storytelling act. And my public is like 20 feet away from me, like no intimacy possible because of that. So... I made him a proposal to build a small performance venue for storytellers and poets and people like that. And they liked the idea and fully funded it. Wow. And Café also took over spaces, turned it into a performance space, and then disappeared. It was a a really sort of quick act. What is the story of the name? It's stolen. (laughs) Yes. So what's new? Uh, I have been working with performance spaces before Café Bozoso. And it was funny because, you know, there was the the mattress factory shows in Atlanta were like huge warehouse right. shows with a couple of hundred artists. So I ended up building places that were places where people could sit. That was the first sort of an incarnation of that. But of course, then I started adding performance spaces and I started adding 
food and stuff like that. So there were several. The mattress lounge was one. Um, cafe success. I had a couple of those. At this point in our Zoom conversation, Normando turns and points to the back wall of his studio, which is covered with dozens of sculptures, paintings, and masks. And some of the artwork right at the top there, there are a series of, of faces, sort of like brown line of faces. That came from one of the Cafe Success pieces that I did in a big warehouse. And the, the pictures that you see at the top are the autographed photographs of the people that came to the cafe and became successful and never came back. (laughs) (laughs) The the funny thing is that that particular show got me into a group show that traveled to Sweden. And there I built a town inside the museum. The same techniques and stuff that I used with Café Bezoso. In Sweden, there were a lot of people who had run away from Chile because of Pinochet at the time. Mm -hmm. So I called it Chilecito, Little Chile, or Loving Chile. And and I, I felt it was necessary to make a statement about that. And it was also a statement about appropriation of culture because I had been in several museums in Europe that just blew me away. I was in a museum in Paris, and there were things from my hometown in Paris. Mm. That was it, you know, touched the heart. <laughs> what are these things doing here? What are these temples doing here, you know? So was that city an, an, an attempt to bring hometown to Sweden for the people who, who had, had to vacate their loving space? Yeah, I think it was a statement about that. It was because there were a lot of people that came through at the time that I met that were part of that. So that's how that piece came about. Part two, the birth of a trickster. Given all the different streams and pathways that you followed, how did you come to be this sort of three-ring circus of an artist? What made you decide, oh, this is what I want to do in my life. As a kid, were you a, a person who people said, oh, there's a young artist just waiting to blossom? Or was it something you were encouraged to do? No, no. I remember my mother saying something like, art, you want to be, you want to do art. That's for rich people, not for you. <laughs> that was what she told me. I think that statement from my mother was in reference to what I was going to study in college. And I was good at math and good at chemistry and physics and stuff like that. So I ended up studying biochemistry. It was weird because every once in a while, something would just burst through, you know. And I remember at one point I made a wood sculpture and it just came out of nothing. And I just made a wood sculpture while I was still studying, you know, college. In Argentina, the education system is different than here. So you don't have like a a general bachelor's path in education. And pretty much when you leave high school, you decide what your career is going to be. You have to declare. It's a European model. Yeah. And if you're studying biochemistry, that's going to be your focus. So at one point I decided I wanted more than that. And I had to like become part of another college 
which was the College of Literature. And I started studying literature at the same time. And that's where I started going back towards a creative style in my life. And it really was linguistics that sort of opened up my way of perceiving the world. It was actually structuralism that did that. Um, It was Saussure. Ferdinand de Saussure was a Swiss linguist and philosopher whose ideas laid the foundation for many significant developments in linguistics and semiotics in the 20th century. And I was pretty much an example of what his studies had been. You know, I was from many generations of Scots that had lived in Argentina. So when I came to the States, I spoke a really old English, an English that had arrived in Argentina in the 1800s. And I, you know, I got laughed at a few times here in the state for using inappropriate words. <laughs> Not far off from the Appalachian. And there's a reason why I really like Southern talking. I like Appalachian talking, mm-hmm. you know, because it has a, a richness that I don't find in other English speaking areas. It's in service to the story more than the structure of the sentence. It's lyrical. Yes. It has second-person plural, which the rest of English doesn't. The you all. Yeah. That is a a normal form in Spanish, so I related to that a lot. Uh Once I was in uh, an African-American neighborhood that was really close to where I lived, and I used to produce a festival there, too. And I was hanging out with a guy that I had done several years. I had worked with him, so we were close, you know, we done the same festival. And this woman came and she was from Cabbage Town. And Cabbage Town basically got populated by people from Appalachia. So the the way people spoke had a lot of relationship to Appalachian English. And she came and she asked my friend a question. And he looked at me and he couldn't get it. So I translated. And then he answers her. And I could tell she didn't understand it. So I translated it back to her. <laughs> and then she left because she got the directions she needed. And I like looked at my friend and I said, do you realize what I just did? I had interpreted many times from Spanish to English, but never to Appalachian. <laughs> never Appalachian. That's beautiful. <laughs> so that sort of brings to mind, when I look at your work, and I'm just going to talk about paintings right now, the story is preeminent. The story is super important, sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly. You even say you want to paint paintings where the story is manifest in a single painting. Could you talk about that and what that means for you? When I came to the States, I didn't have much control of English. It took me years before I got good enough to where I could tell a story in English. So I focused on visual art. At first, I started on crafts because really quick, I started realizing that uh, what was going on in Argentina was going to last a long time. The dictatorship was going to be in power and I wasn't going to be able to go back. So really, that meant my education was out the door. And the first thing that I had to do was find a way to make money. So I 
started with crafts. And I went to school and learned how to form metals, which eventually led to a job in a jewelry store. And nobody in the class wanted a job as a polisher, but I went, yes, I'm doing it. And that was my entry into the jewelry world. There was a building in Atlanta, the Carnegie Building, and there must have been about 10, 15 jewelry workshops there. And I started as a polisher. And eventually, I was setting diamonds and doing repair. And then it was a way to live at first. And I had gone to, to school and I had picked up this concept of making miniature sculptures, which is the art that I was doing at the time. So I started working in a world that was a foot by a foot. That was my art creating world at the time. And things started to change because I started interpreting and doing voiceover work. So the jewelry work didn't make that much sense anymore. At some point around there, I had a studio in Nexus. The Nexus Center for the Arts in Atlanta has been true to its namesake as a catalyst and incubator for artists and their ideas for the past 30 years. Back in Normando's early days, it was small and funky. Now it's much bigger with a new name, the Atlanta Contemporary Art Center. And I think that having a studio in Nexus sort of redirected me as an artist because now I was around other artists I was learning all kinds of techniques from them and I was getting interested in other forms of art and it wasn't long that I, I was making installations which was a form of art that I was very comfortable with so my art creating world went from a foot by a foot to a fairly large footprint and then I started volunteering to make sets in the theater at Nexus. And Ian McCall was running that theater at the time. And he was bringing, what is it, PS122, is it called? Yep. Yeah. The legendary New York art space. I was bringing them and I built a set for them and it involved some workshops and they suggested that I take the workshops and and work with them, do the exercises. And I enjoyed it a lot. And at one point, I was sitting in the front row and he went speak to me. And I just told a story about how some students had been killed in Argentina in one of the prisons. And Charles went, you have to tell that story. And then the performance came and I was on stage. I went, oh, I know this world. I know this very well because I was the big hope that my parents had that I would become the preacher. And, you know, I had been a child preacher. And so all of a sudden I went, oh, I know what I can do here. And by then, my English had got to where I could actually start writing stories. And the stories led to building performance spaces. (laughs) (laughs) And then they started feeding the performances. So by the time Café Bezoso comes around, I had done several installation performance pieces. One was the Condor's Nest Hotel, which was a major piece. And the last Inca, 
Yes. And cons, which were two other huge pieces. I mean, they were regular theater performance. Actually, I did contact a couple of times at seven stages in Atlanta. And then, so when I started doing Bozozo, um, again, the accident sometimes rules the game, you know? So that first show, I was building and just trying to get it all together in time, which is something that I'm, I'm always known for, just working to the last minute. I think I was teaching people how to make mate. And then when and the place filled up and my boots were on the other side of the stage, the boots I was going to use to perform. And so I crossed the stage and I sat on the edge and put my boots on while I made up the story that Grandpa was also on his deathbed of giving me the boots because he wanted me to carry on the stories of the Bezoso family. I made that stuff up right there, you know. And from then on, I was Papa Bezoso. And from then on, I made up stories about the Bezoso family. And it was great because I didn't have my family here, you know. I had left my family, my country, the whole thing. I had left it. And all of a sudden, the Bezoso family became my substitute family. And you could take it wherever you wanted to. Yes. (laughs) So that's a little bit how all that came around, you know. One of the things about Café Bozoso is uh, what I call now micro stories, you know, mm-hmm. little stories. They were always meant to occupy those awkward moments where the act on stage is not ready to go yet because they need to tune the guitar or they need to do something like that. And I hated those silence moments, you know. So I started making little stories to go in there. I'd introduce people as some dignitary. That's what I call the false dignitary stories. And I just choose somebody in the audience and just introduce them as a multimillionaire that's supporting the arts or something like that. (laughs) And they get a big applause, you know. Uh, And then people started getting the whole confession thing. And people would get up and confess that they were Bezozos too. And they would choose a new Bezozo name. And that just started to be like a common thing. I mean, then people from the audience would get up and, and tell stories. Yeah, every time I did Bezozos, there were new Bezozos confessing to their sins, their mutation. I had one story about, you know, how the Bezozos, they had a special mutation that led them to laugh at very serious matters and other things. So that's sort of how Bezozo came into existence. Part three, the last Inca in jail. So it's a state of mind way beyond the stage and that had a life of its own with you and the people who participated in it. So it's very clear to me that these micro stories, they've also manifested visually. So like the last Inca in jail, there it is. Now, without this title, it's, it's intriguing. With the title, it automatically triggers your mind to create your own universe around it. Talk about creating this space that is in a sense, a a little movie that you can uh, walk into. I wanted to create an environment that made you think you were somewhere else, not in your own world, that didn't look polished, didn't look 
clean and didn't look professional because that intimidates people. And what I wanted was people participating. And so the paintings that I was doing were paintings that, that were simple. And a lot of times they had stories and I'd make up stories. And like the masks and stuff would have stories to them. One painting you're talking about is the last Inca. And a lot of times the, the paintings would trigger stories. That's a performance piece. Also, that involved other actors and involved puppetry. Is there a story for the last Inca? Yes. Oh, it's, it's an amazing story straight out of history. The last Inca is the story of a Spanish soldier who ends up in Peru and he gets in trouble with the viceroy and they banish him and they send him to a fort in Copiapo in Chile that they know is about to fall to the indigenous people from there. And this young man goes there and he builds a cannon out of wood that was only good for like a couple of explosions and then the cannon fell apart. But it was enough to signal to the Araucanos that the Spaniards now had a cannon Mm. and the Araucanos decided to leave. Mm. So he saves the fort and they immediately want to make him the hero, you know. Making him, they made him a captain right away. And he's not the kind of guy that likes fort life. And he's been hanging out with the daughter of an Inca. And so she's a royal family. And they go down to about where Santiago is, they cross the Andes into Mendoza in Argentina. And they end up close to the region where I grew up. And his companion spreads the word that he is actually an Inca that's dressed up as a Spaniard. And the indigenous people in that area took on to him and made him the Inca. They built him a palace and everything. And he managed to come to an agreement with the Spanish authorities of that area. They see the advantage of having somebody they can interact with indigenous people. But eventually the Viceroy got word of it and they incarcerated him and he died in jail. But that caused a huge indigenous uprising in Northwest Argentina. And it ended up with a similar trail of tears like the Cherokee here in the States. So that's the, the last Inca story. That has a parallel, or maybe it's the same story, to Pedro Chamijo. Bojorquez. Yes. And yeah, the story of Pedro de yeah, Bojorquez. Pedro Bojorquez, and... which is an extraordinary mm. story. And there's a theme here. The Puyai, the trickster, the joker in the work of, of the Bizoso is trickster work. This story here of, of you are not who you appear to be, or you decide to appear to be somebody you're not, or other people see you mm -hmm. as something else, as a shapeshifter. Yes. That's a theme in a lot of your work. Am I right there? Yes. I mean, the story of Contralabias. The smuggler, you know, right? The smuggler. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And, I mean, the Bezosos 
always, you know, one of my lines was that they could smell trouble before they got, they got to them and they'd always be gone by the time trouble got there. Yes, there's a book that influenced me a lot um, called Disruptive Play. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I've heard of it. It's been mentioned a n- number of times. Who's the the author? Do you remember? I can find it mm-hmm. if you give me a second. Sure. I guess you're editing these tapes. Oh, yeah. This is where we sell the micro story. Yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. Cousin Bizoso, uh, unbeknownst to himself, marries his sister. We've had weddings. Alfred Siegel. Hmm. That's his name. Trickster in politics and culture. Part four. The crack attack. Normando, my first introduction to a little story, The Crack Attack, was very much a trickster event, was it not? Yes. Using my trickster uh, qualities to the max, actually. Could you talk a little bit about that? It's always inspired me. It's it's not on stage. It's the world is a stage in that yes. case. It mixed up. It got all mixed up. These guys had put the crack house next to my house. It was a, an empty lot in between. One night I was out walking my dog and there was a cat out there. And I asked the guy who was out there selling the crack, I asked him, is that your cat? And he was so paranoid of me asking such a simple question that I realized this, that's their weakness. They're afraid of me, you know? So then there was a, there was a fire in some apartments that were behind the house. And the main crack dealer, the name was Dynamite, is out there like everybody else looking at the fire to fire. And he asked me about those apartments. There were mainly Mexican people living there. I went, oh, they're, you know, they're great people to be around. You know, don't ever mess with one because you mess with one and all of them are going to come on you. I was just trying to scare him so he would stay away from from that scene. And then I told this guy a bunch of different stories. And what I was doing, I was just working with his head. And so I I told him, yeah, you know, there's that red house up on the other block. You know which one I'm talking? Yes, I know that house. Say, well, this guy went in to mess with this Mexican in that house. And the Mexican got an extension cord and put it around his neck. And And then I go... And you know what was really funny about the whole thing? The Mexican's name was Jesus. I realized I freaked him out a little bit. So every time I'd be around him, I'd tell him some kind of story to freak him out even more. And and he was like, I'm trying to keep the scene clean, you know? And and I would go, yes, you know, while you're here and you have crack, things are okay. But when you're not here and there's no crack, they're freaking out, man. (laughs) So that went on like that for a while. And then it started getting really depressing for me to watch this scene. And, and it was really affecting what I was doing in Little Beirut. Just to watch people that were healthy looking, and then two or three months later were walking skeletons, just started depressing me in a huge way. And it was like, I need to do something about this. I had told Dynamite, you need to move your crack house. I always treated him like a businessman. I said, you have a really good business going on here, but I'm tired of your business. 
And I know you try to keep it cool, but it's still out of control. You're going to have to move out of here. And he goes, are you going to call the cops? And I say, you know I don't call the cops, but I'm going to make it so you can't operate from there. So it was in my head, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And there was a group of artists that were doing photo graffiti. And they would take photographs and make them big again, you know, reproduce them and make them really tall. We were going to use that technique um, to reveal and scare off the customers. That was the idea at the time. So we were out there with a couple of these artists in my porch when all of a sudden the the crack unit, the anti-drug unit shows up. They were called the Red Dogs or something like that. They had been actually absorbing them to tell when they were going to get a load in. And the night that they got a load in is the night they got busted. So it was a serious crime. And they had found guns in the house, and that made it a federal crime. So it took it away from the local courts. But I knew that every time they would get busted, that the crack house would go completely silent for the rest of the night. I also knew that we're going to come back to this neighborhood. I just knew that that was part of, of the game. So I went to the back to, to where my studio was, and I found some latex paint, and I painted these huge letters, crack house. And in the front of it, because it was a duplex, I put buy your crack right here with a arrow going to their door, <laughs> just, just to make sure. <laughs> Um, and it turned, it turned into a police show or a show for police because I guess word got around and they'd be coming in the middle of the night and shining lights and commenting on it and stuff. And, and then I decided that, you know, we had to do something else. So I sent my family to my father-in-law's house, my wife and my child because I was afraid they would shoot us up, you know. And I wasn't sleeping in the house. I had parked a truck outside in the yard and I was sleeping in the truck outside, just been hanging out at night. And then two or three nights after that, Steve Seberg is, was hanging with me and he, he was like, oh, we have to do something, you know. And we started making art about it. And we started filling up the lot in between my house and the crack house with art. And we kept working on this empty lot and we turned it into a to an art show. We called it the Crack Attack Show. We even had a panel in the front that the children in the neighborhood wrote from their own experiences about it. Uh, and then the next weekend, we opened up with a wine and cheese reception. The attraction was the crack house all painted up. The, the main dealer, Dynamite, came by. And I saw him walking by during the wine and cheese opening. And I go, you know, I need to go. I can't let him just walk by. I need to deal with this, you know. Because I was still afraid that they'd try some real weird shit. And I go out there and, and I just confronted him straight up and say, hey, Dynamite, how do you like the art? And he starts laughing and he says, don't worry, we're not going to come 
back to this neighborhood. So a group of artists from a different part of town came out in support of what was going on. And they painted up all these signs and stuff and made it sort of like a crazy parade and went around the neighborhood and the major streets and put these signs up about a crack house that had opened up in the other block. And I'm out there cleaning up the outdoor gallery and the chief of sanitation for the city of Atlanta shows up. And and he says, you wouldn't happen to know who put all those signs up there on, on Memorial and Boulevard. And I say, I didn't have anything to do with that. I could ask and find out. He pulls out his personal card and he gives it to me. And he says, if you run into these people, give them my card because I have a crack house in my neighborhood and I want to get rid of it. He was ready to hire us. He'd never pulled the signs. You know, it was like, it was here, big rocks, no cops. That was one of the signs. Prices slashed on crack. (laughs) A really crazy scene. Uh, He left the signs up. For like days, the signs were up which was basically an indictment on the cops. I have to believe that for the customers, that was a little too hot, too. Exactly. To be seen wandering around this place. No, it was over. You know, I I realize, you know, the one thing that'll mess up a crack house is advertisement. If you just advertise it, that's it. So that's how that story went down. I remember there were a couple of neighbors that had been talking about burning the house. Oh, yeah, we need to go burn the house down. You know, they were really pissed about the whole thing. And I I remember I said, I think I'm going to go paint. They looked at me like, and then when the next day, when the house was all painted up, they knew it was me. But I try to keep it secret, you know. It's a great story. The trickster is always pretending not to know and to be impotent in many ways. You know, oh, me, I'm not, I don't, I'm, I'm just, I'm just a silly person here. And then you end up realizing, oh, there's a story that got spun here that is really powerful, that transcends the, the stupidity of the given circumstance. It's a revelation. It reveals what's in your face, what's obvious. And it's a refreshing thing because so many people feel like when they're between the rock and the hard place, there's no place to go. No place at all. Yeah. Some people think we're in between a rock and a hard place right now. Now, what have you been doing? What's your work in this strange moment? It's been occupying? really hard for me. Uh, the lack of contact really was very hard for me to deal with. And creatively, I just dried up. Uh, the last few months have been um, getting better. Since I got vaccinated, things have changed a whole lot. The gallery downtown is, you know, more activities going on. And I've been to a couple of gatherings now where I can, I've told stories. So it feels like things are coming back again, you know. I mean, the, the pandemic year is, as far as I'm concerned, pretty much gone. Your work requires a community. It is a community enterprise. Yes. So that's where things are now. Things have changed in many ways. 
My daughter has moved back from Korea, so uh, a granddaughter to play with. And I think that that's made my head a little healthier. Yeah. yeah. This is all for them. Just trying to get this stuff flushed so that they can have a reasonable life. The grandkids. Yeah. I, I have to tell you, you've given me a lot. And to me, the bottom line is some artists make things. But others, artists, they contribute to the building of our collective story. They push, they prod, they needle, they trick. And most of the artists that I'm talking to are people who see themselves as part of a much larger stage. And you're one of them. And I appreciate the time that you've spent. I really do. Thank you. Adios. Bye. And adios to another episode. And our listeners, who we want to thank for tuning in and encourage you to share this podcast with anyone you think might be interested. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It is written and hosted by yours truly, Bill Cleveland. Our editing is by Andre Nebe. Our soundscape and theme are by the brilliant Judy Munson. And our inspiration comes from the mysterious Ook 235.